Spirit of God, we ask today that you would move in this place, in our midst. We ask you would give us an encounter with you. We ask you would change us, speak to us. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Well, we are marching through Acts, and we find ourselves today in Acts 8 in a very interesting passage. And every time we get to these passages that are a little bit interesting or a little bit difficult, it's, it's always a challenge and fun as a communicator to say, God, what do you want from us? And you're going to see today, there, we get to some stuff today that, that's very... Um, well, you'll see. You'll see. We're going to jump right into Acts, and there's some things I'm going to skip over today because Charlie's speaking in a couple weeks, and, but all I'm going to tell you about that is after the stoning of Stephen, there was a great persecution, and so the saints, the, the apostles, disciples, the people, they, they spread, they fled, and they went off into the surrounding country. So Acts 8 is where we're going to be, and I'm going to start in verse 4. We're going to jump right in. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed or lame or healed, so there was great joy in this city. Here we see the Jesus followers arriving in Samaria, which if we remember back, and I know you all remember everything that I say up here, if you remember back in Acts 1, when Jesus ascended up into heaven, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit, because then he he will come and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. It was a a three-phase plan, and we see them here entering into phase two. They've left Jerusalem, and now they're going into Samaria. So that's that's where we find ourselves. And let's talk about Samaria for just a second. Uh, The Jewish people and the Samarians at this time, Samaritans, were not friendly. And at the time of Jesus, they did worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They believed the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. But one of the main sticking points, and this was so interesting to me, is that in Samaria they believed that it wasn't Jerusalem where the temple should be, the, the capital, so to speak, of God's presence, but it was another mountain. So they had competing mountains. And to this day, during Passover, they actually celebrate Passover at that mountain that they believe. In the time of reading this, the Samaritans, they were looked down upon. They were unclean. They were viewed as unclean, I should say. But Jesus had promised the Samaritans that salvation would come to them. And here comes Philip preaching it. That's about as normal as today is going to get. Okay, so let's go back in. Let's go back into verse 9. Here we go. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery. He's known as Simon the Sorcerer. It's just a great name. He practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Wow. Here we have Simon the sorcery, a man who amazed the people with his black magic. Now I have to tell you, this, this isn't parlor tricks. This isn't, he didn't pull a rabbit out of a hat or suspend a donkey over the crowd. There's no Vegas, you know, weekly thing with, with Simon. No, this is something supernatural. This is not sleight of hand. This is a cult, spiritual activity not sourced by Jesus. 
Now it says in verse 10, they called him, right, they said, rightly he is called the great power of God. And we can assume they're saying this because it says he boasted about himself. Like he talks about himself and they go, he's rightly called that. He does these works and he's called that. So then we go into something else. Because this, this name, the, the great power of God is fascinating when you begin to unlock it and open it up. Because the Samaritans, they have a Bible. Did you know that? They have, it's, it's, it's called the Samaritan Pentateuch or, or Targum. It's an ancient Samaritan translation of the Hebrew Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They have that in their own language, ancient. They believe God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And while there's a lot of, incon- there's, there's inconsistencies based on language, which you would understand, it's a fascinating how they're related. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, which our Bible comes from, the word for God was El, like El Shaddai. That's, one of the more, that's, that's how they would just say L, they would say God right there. But if you go to the original language of the Samaritans and read in theirs, the word they have there for God is Kelah. Now Kelah is also, it's synonymous with power. It was the same words, God and power. So when Simon says he's the great power, it's believed he's actually connecting himself more than just the great power. That's the English translation from the, the actual, how they would say it, he's, he's connecting himself to God. Not the great power, maybe the great God, but it gets deeper. It goes, it goes even deeper. If you follow the roots of this word, kelah, into the, into the plurals and the roots of it, you see that it also has, it pertains to angels. And so what they actually believe Simon is claiming here is that he is the angel of God or the great angel of God. And I know you're like, oh, what does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is repeated over and over. And the angel of the Lord is actually, sometimes when God himself would come down on earth and do amazing works, the angel of the Lord. And here we have Simon claiming to be the great angel of God. And with them, with their Samaritan Targum, he is connecting himself. He is saying he's doing all these amazing works. Listen, he's saying, I am God's messenger. I might be, I am the angel of God. I mean, this is just a normal Thursday for Simon the sorcerer, if you're him. Just going around doing these, these, these signs and wonders and claiming to be something. And so I want us to have some context before we get into what happens here. We have Samaria and we have, we have Simon. He's doing dark magic and claiming that he is in some way divine or connected to the divine. But then we see Philip, a traveling evangelist for Jesus who comes through town. And he's performing signs and miracles. In verse 12, the people see this. But, when they, believe, but they believe Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women, the people of this area. They heard Philip's message about Jesus, and they came to faith in Jesus. Simon the sorcerer, he sees these signs and wonders. And being a man of signs and wonders, he realizes something very quickly. Philip possesses a power he does not have. Philip possesses a power greater than that that he has. And in verse 13, Simon himself believed. Bible's very clear. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. I love this. I love this. The man who was known as the great power of God, who astonished the high and low, is now astonished by the most high. The one who was the great power has seen the greater power and has given his life to it. He's he's astonished people, but now he is astonished. It's troubling for some to to read in these passages and see that Simon actually did have some sort of power. 
It wasn't as potent as God's power, but he did have some sort of spiritual power. Now, it begs the question here, and we're going to get into this. If the spiritual power was not from God, what was the source? And if the source is not the Holy Spirit, the Bible is clear that it is empowered by the enemy of God. And for some of you, it's shocking to even hear that there's power outside of God's. And for some of you, it's offensive to hear that, the, that there's spiritual practices that, that are now um, powered by the enemies of God. But let's, let's continue to push into this and see what it says. Let me read Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the, the um, enemy's schemes. Listen to this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's people but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) People are not my enemy. No matter how much you vilify someone, the Bible tells us the people are our enemy. You are not my enemy. Other people are not my enemy. My enemy is the spiritual enemy of God. And that's where Simon's power comes from. And the Bible is clear on this. And I, and I want to pull aside for a moment and, and discuss sorcery and witchcraft and, and occult and spiritual practices that are not sourced by Jesus. If we are involved in spiritual practices, not from Jesus and not for Jesus, we must be very careful and I would say consider, inspect, and repent of this in our life. Ouija boards, tarot readings, medium spells, witchcraft. These things are often mentioned. There's some of these mentioned in the Bible. And as one who wants to follow Jesus, we should, we should do this. We should constantly ask, who is the source of this? What is the source of this? When you read your horoscope, who's the source of that? Seriously, do you ever think about that? Who's the source of the wisdom in the, in the horoscope? When you get a tarot reading, who is the source of that? When you ask the stars to tell you your future, did the creator of the stars empower them to tell you that? When you consult a medium to give you some sort of guidance, what's the source of that guidance? Any spiritual practice, we should check the source of it. Because if it's not Jesus, if it's not from him and it's not for him, the Bible is very clear, we're not to have anything to do with such things. Deuteronomy says this, let no one be found that practices divination or sorcery, who interprets omens or who engages in these things in witchcraft. Now now Simon the sorcerer, he was involved in these practices for his own benefit and claiming to be the great power of God. I doubt many of you fit into this camp if you're dabbling in some of that stuff. I hope. If you are the great power, I would love to meet you. Let's talk afterwards. But see, when we dabble and dip our toe in these kinds of things, it feels much more innocent oftentimes. It feels innocent. Most often when a person walks into a tarot reading or to get some sort of um, guide or guidance or wisdom, they're looking for supernatural answers or a benefit to them. But through Jesus, it's clear that the Holy Spirit in us is the one who sources that for us. And the Holy Spirit is the true source of spiritual power, the source of wisdom especially. I mean, James 1.5 said, if, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Ask and believe. Anyone going to a medium or a reading or a horoscope is asking maybe the right question of the wrong person, of the wrong place. Ask what the source is. 
What's the source of the horoscope? At best, it's a nice lady who writes things that are good enough, hopefully, so you'll read it again tomorrow. At best, it's just a human writing something. That's the best case scenario. At worst, there is something there. And you gotta check the source. Is that what you want to have your decisions and your attitudes in the morning as you frame your day? Oh, okay, I'm gonna frame my day based on this. Bottom line is this. There are some things in life we don't dabble in. We don't tinker with, we don't try out. Meth, extramarital affairs, gas station sushi, and the occult. <laughs> and the occult, can we all can we agree? God doesn't want his followers in any way involved in these spiritual practices, not from Jesus or sourced from the Holy Spirit. But let me, let me change a little bit because people could think it's competition. Like, of course he doesn't want you involved. Over there he wants you, I've had people say, well, yeah, he, he wants you all to himself. Well, God is a loving father and he doesn't want his beloved children involved in anything that will hurt them or lead them to evil. And like, if my son, Eli, who just turned five, came to me and if he came to me and said, Dad, I think I'm getting to the age where I'm ready to try some meth. I wouldn't tell him no because I don't want him to have fun. I wouldn't have to convince my son not to do meth because I don't want him to, because I, I, I want him to miss out on all that life has. No, no, I want him not to do meth so he can experience what life has. That's how God is with us. He wants, you to, he wants to lead you on paths that are full of life. And these dark practices do not lead down that path. John 10, 10, Jesus says it clearly, I came to give life and life to the full. And that is what he brings. Someone who's following and basing their life on Jesus, a life empowered and resourced with more love and joy and peace and hope and purpose and transformed lives and changing other lives. That's the life he offers. But in that same verse, he goes on and he finishes it telling us about the source of these pagan practices. He says, I came to give life and life to the full, but the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's where those things lead. And I just wanna say this, any perceived benefit of any of these occult spiritual practices must be weighed with the understanding that the source of the perceived benefit wants to destroy you. <laughs> Any perceived benefit, oh, but it's kind of harmless. The source wants to steal, kill, and destroy. It's like a stranger in a blacked out van handing out candy at a playground. The candy may be sweet, <laughs> but it leads you to a place you don't want to go. Let's put a cap on this. Check the sources of the spiritual practices you're involved in. If it's not Jesus, the source has a darker motive. If it's not Jesus, it has a limited power. Simon here sees that Philip has this unlimited Holy Spirit power and he is very limited. The source also has a desire to lead you further from God. And God as a loving father asks us not to dabble and not to play with these things. And I would say this, this week or today, take some time and then look at the, the spiritual practices you're involved in. Ask God to give you wisdom on these things. Ask him the source. Look at the sources. If it's not for Jesus or from Jesus, then, then ask God what you should do with that. The best part is if, if you find yourself like, oh my gosh, there is no condemnation in Christ. He loves you. He wants you free of that. You're forgiven. You're loved and empowered to make changes. In all this, the great news is Simon the sorcerer gets saved. He sees Philip doing these things. He, he hears Philip's preaching around these things. 
And he, he, it's, the Bible says that he believed and was baptized. Now, the apostles in Jerusalem, they hear about these great things, and they send in the big guns. Like, stuff's happening over there. Let's send in Peter and John. And so Peter and John go to build on Philip's evangelism work. Peter and John arrive, and they begin to do even more signs and miracles, and Simon watches them as they lay hands on people, and the people receive the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 18, we see this. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands by the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone whom I may lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon sees this power, and guess what? He wants it. So he offers him money. And here we see something. You know, Simon has an immature faith. He has a lifetime of experience in other spiritual practices and experiences with him. And it'd be hard to expect him to fully understand the fullness of God yet. He hasn't, let your, he hasn't let your, yet learned that the Holy Spirit is the free gift of God through Jesus. The word is clear. He, he believed and was baptized, but he hasn't been discipled. That is, he hasn't been, he hasn't been grown up and matured in his faith. So we ask the question, out of his previous experience. Now the danger here is that if Simon is allowed to continue to live this way, he will continue to meld his pagan practices with his brand new faith in Jesus. Do you see what he's doing here? He's asking to add it in. Oh, I like that. I'm the great power of God. I see a greater power. Give me that and I want to do, he's looking to meld these two things. If Simon isn't corrected here, he's going to begin to pick and choose what he likes about the Jesus stuff and what he likes about his previous stuff. Ooh, I like that and I like that and I like that. This is the start of this path and I call this spiritual buffetism and it's an epidemic. Spiritual buffetism. We go, we go down the line of religion and beliefs and we go, oh, <laughs> love I want a lot of that. Oh, yes, grace. Jesus, the only way. I will, take, I will taste that today. I will taste that one. Or we go down the line of buffets of the beliefs and we pick what we like and we leave off our plate what we don't feel, doesn't feel good to us. And we get our religious plate and we go back and go, okay, this is for, I have now decided what is true based on the buffet and what I prefer. And Simon was just new to his faith, but already trying to make this Thanksgiving plate of pagan and Christian. And more than this, we see a bit of his motives in his question. He says, give me the ability so that whoever I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, give me the Holy Spirit for my own self and transformation. I want this ability so that I can lay hands on people and they can receive it. I, I, it seems like he wants to be important again. He, he's, he may not be the great power, but he wants to be a broker of the greater power. I want to be someone who I have the ability and I get to go pass it on. He's melding. It's the buffet here. He's looking to put them together. He's trying to put them together and Jesus calls us continually to one faith under him to keep Jesus the main thing. That's what we say here at the Orchard all the time. Keep the main thing the main thing and that is Jesus from him and for him. Peter, we've seen how Peter reacts to these confrontations, right? Right? You know, John is called the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, and it's always Peter and John. And John's, if he's this loving disciple, he's like, oh, well, Simon. Peter's like, let me just tell you. And I always wondered if John's like, oh, like it's just so, listen, listen to what Peter says. Listen to this, verse 20. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. 
because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord and hope that he may forgive you in having such a thought in your heart, for I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon, imagine Simon. Partly out of immaturity and partly out of this trying to meld his two faiths, he asked to buy this, but peace, something happens here. See, Simon's question seems like a misdemeanor, but Peter confronts it like a first-degree murder, with like a death sentence on his character. But what we need to notice here is that with discernment from the Holy Spirit, Peter is not responding to the simple question of a young believer. He's responding to the heart of this man. He's responding to the motive. There are no bad questions, but there are bad motives, apparently. And Peter gets to the root. Simon, your heart isn't right Peter sees that Simon is trying to take his old ways of doing things and add in this Jesus stuff and in this new way that works really, make it work for me. I'll be important again. And he, he knows that's a heart issue. He tells him to check his heart and pray for forgiveness. And Simon is struck by this. He says, pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said will happen. None of it, please. Now from here, Peter and John move on to preach all through Samaria and, and the Bible doesn't tell us anything more about Simon the sorcerer. Now there's legend and there's lore outside of the church, but in the Bible it says that he believed and he was baptized, but that's about it. We don't know what happens from here. And perhaps he took, he took this rebuke from Peter and he changed his ways. Perhaps he was, oh my goodness, you're right, and he changed. Perhaps he wanted to be important more than he wanted to follow Jesus and eventually went back to sorcery. But we learn some very important things from Simon's question. You see, he was saved, but he was a baby. He needed to mature. He needed to grow. He was a spiritual infant, and his heart was still full of his old ways, and his old experiences helped dictate what he did. If he chooses not to grow in faith, I don't know how it goes for him. And you, if you've come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we learn from Simon that we all have some growing to do. In this account, we see some biblical principles at work. We see that Philip evangelized. He went and proclaimed Jesus. We see that Peter discipled. That means he, so Philip called them to Jesus and Peter called them to mature in faith. Each of us is in one of these camps. We either need Philip or we need Peter. If you haven't yet chosen to accept Jesus as Savior, you are called to him as Lord. He calls you to come to me. This is what Philip was calling people to. Come to Jesus. I mean, remember, Jesus offers you forgiveness of your past, peace in your present, and hope for your future. If you have not yet come to Jesus, Philip, the evangelist, he would call you, come to Jesus. If you have made the decision to follow Jesus as Savior at some point in your life, then you are continually called to maturity to a deeper faith, to deeper roots. And this is what Peter was calling Simon to. You know, in our, Amer in our American church culture, oftentimes we think that once we pray to receive Jesus, we're done. And there's the joke about it being fire insurance. Like, I pray to receive Jesus, I have my fire insurance, so the fires of hell will never get me. Well, okay. But the reality is, is that choosing to believe in Jesus is just step one of a lifetime journey. Now, it's a big step, but it is not the destination. If you've received Jesus as Savior, you are not done. 
You're called to follow him, to get to know his, his character and his nature and his word, to be in his, his presence in prayer, to worship with others, to know him, to be known of him. In fact, Jesus called the people who were newly saved, what did he call them? Born again. So if you've been born again, what does that make you? A baby. A baby. We're born, you're born again. Simon was a spiritual baby. My two-and-a-half-year-old, Selah, pretends to be a baby, and it's cute. But it's not cute if she's five and still a baby. It's, it's not cute if she's 18 and still a baby. It's now sad. And it's not cute if she's 30 and still an infant. It's tragic. And it's not cute if we were born again 10 years ago and still infants in our faith. It's not cute. Orchard, we are called to be born again, but then we are called to mature. How mature is your faith? That's what I ask. How mature is your faith? If someone's gonna get baptized here in the second service and, and, and their eyes are newly opened, their heart newly awakened to this, this hope and, the, and of, on, on the horizon, all that God has for them. And 1 Peter 2 talks about this. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. When you're an infant, you feed on spirit, pure spiritual milk. But are we meant to, to drink baby infant milk our whole life? No. How mature is your faith? And, and this is interesting. No matter how, how long you've known Jesus, how much have you matured? Now, if you've been saved five years, it doesn't mean you're a five-year-old. That's not how God's timing works on that, okay? The good news is a physical year is not a spiritual year. God can mature you with a swiftness if we surrender to it. And I had fun as I stopped and, and wondered about this, about maturity levels of faith, because then we have, you know, we have infants who are drinking the milk, then we have toddlers who are, are barely able to walk in their own faith, but they're growing and they're attempting new things. We have elementary school maturity. They're picking up new tools and skills in their faith, learning to, to read and memorize. You have middle school faith, um, a faith that refuses to shower or brush its teeth. You have, um, you have a high school faith, maturity, struggling with reputation and concerns of the world so much so that you're trying to fit in. Do I hide my faith to fit in? Maybe your faith has matured into its 20s. High passion, low wisdom, but growing and taking stands. And 20-year-old faith, by the way, it doesn't drink spiritual milk. It eats spiritual avocado toast. Then you have... Then you have faith in your 30s, going through hardships and actual real life and finding your faith forged in that. 40s, coming into your own. Maybe, maybe you have a midlife crisis and drive around a super Pentecostal car. I don't know, like, where's your faith? How old is it? And in 50s, I mean, you're battle-scarred from struggles in the world, your flesh and your life. You have wisdom, you're mentoring. How mature is your faith? This is just a funny thought. Where, how, how have you grown in your time? Where are you in this? It's a, it's a funny thought, but it's an it's an ugly reality. Because some people were born again 30 years ago and they're still crawling on the floor and drinking milk and wetting their spiritual diaper. God asks us to mature. He asks us to grow. Peter would call that person to maturity, to grow up, to own your faith, to check your motives, to know that integrity matters to God, to take risks, to go deeper in love, to grow in your knowledge of him. He would call us away from what Simon was trying to do, mixing and melding beliefs into some hybrid that we just feel comfortable with. A friend of mine was discussing this and he said a tree that stops growing starts dying. What about your faith? Is it growing? 
You know, the best part is, no matter where you are in your walk with God, you can start right now with no condemnation from him. He doesn't, he doesn't scold you if you come back from wandering. He loves you. He's calling you back. He welcomes you back. Your sin, tell him you're sorry. Know you're forgiven. But he wants you to return and grow. Interestingly, this is the first time I have ever preached without my iPad. I forgot it today because my wife didn't leave the house with me. And uh, the last page of my notes is gone. <laughs> so it must still be on the copier. So with that said, let me close this service. Simon teaches us a few things. You know, maybe you were like Simon a little bit. You were unclear that you were, he was unclear that he was involved in some things that God's word is clear he should not have been. But Orchard, now we're clear. There's a, go, go look in the Bible. Go do a word. I just did a little word, little word study. The Bible's clear about our involvement in things, spiritual practices that are not rooted and founded in Jesus. I would say this. During the communion time, reflection time, I would inspect your life. Look at your spiritual practices. Ask Jesus, what, what about this? And may you have the courage to make changes. Also, we learn from Simon that we need to grow. And although it's funny to think about babies, it's not funny to think about continuing to be a baby. God has called the orchard to be a people who actually live what we say we believe, that we love God deeply, truly. We have an affection for him and we're pursuing him. And that we love people, all people, and so we, may we be found of those kinds of people. And that comes from, from things like um, reading his word. And in fact, this week, if you want a simple first step in your bulletin, in your notes, it has a Monday through Friday there, you can just take five minutes a day, read those verses, and then pray, God, how do I apply this to my life? For some of you, start there. But, but dive in. Here's what we should do. Engage your faith and grow into maturity. Join a growth group. Join a discipleship group. Listen to a podcast on your drive instead. Whatever it would be, but begin to grow and mature in your knowledge of God. He will reveal things to you. And hopefully, like Simon, we will see where we have had the spiritual buffet and God will gently take us through. I don't think God's gonna speak to you like Peter did, okay? It's okay. He loves you. And today, he calls you to a singular faith in him. So, during our, com during our communion uh, we're going to have some people up front. If you would like prayer, anything from a blessing, anything from forgiveness, anything for a need, whatever it would be, there are people up here to pray for you. Anything that pertains to the sermon, I want you to inspect your hearts as you guys get the, uh, the symbols of Jesus' body and blood. And remember, this is an open communion. You don't have to go through a class to do this. We take this in remembrance of Jesus, and if you'd like to do that, you are welcome to. And as you sit there with the symbols of his great sacrifice, the sacrifice that opened the way to God that calls you into further maturity. Thank him for that. Thank him for that. And ask him to embolden you to step forward and grow in your faith. Amen? God, we come before you and, and we thank you so much that you call us not just to salvation, but to maturity. And I pray uh, for us as the orchard, Father, I pray your spirit would speak clearly to us in this moment, that you would show us the spiritual things that we're involved in that you're pleased with or not. I also pray, Father, that you would help those of us who have wandered off or who have stopped growing. I pray you help us to re-engage. 
I pray that the, for all of us here today, we would re-engage wherever we are in, in you. Thank you for this. We worship you now in Jesus' name, amen.